Well, you're on again with another episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman, and I have my friend and ruling elder, Kevin Miller. Kevin, thanks for being on again, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So today we are talking something that may seem early. It may seem uh, shockingly early, but we are going to talk the first overture to our knowledge for the 2024 General Assembly. Because Piedmont Triad Presbytery one week ago or about a week and a half ago passed an overture to uh, allow atheists or anybody really to testify that ecclesial court allows testify. And in doing so, removing the oath from the witness testimony. And so uh, this came about last last weekend, right, Kev? Yes. So um, it was voted on. I don't. I don't think we had an exact vote, but it was, uh, I would estimate, passed by 75% um, from Piedmont Triad Presbytery. Uh, yeah, I, I agree, yeah. So, yeah, fairly overwhelming. And um, it modifies BCO 35.1 and 35.8. You may remember a few years ago, I don't know if it's it's four years ago or five years ago now, a committee was formed by the General Assembly to study all kinds of abuse. Uh, it took the committee, I think, two years to report. They asked for an extra year, and they produced what was a very substantial, over 200-page report. As a result of that, a number of recommendations were made, or suggestions, really. They didn't. Uh, I don't think they made official recommendations, but there was a lot of suggestions in there that we knew would be coming to the General Assemblies over the next couple years. And we've actually just passed uh, one of those recommendations to protect abuse victims uh, at this last General Assembly. So it, it went through the whole process a year ago. It passed the presbyteries and then it was ratified at this last General Assembly to uh, protect victims from uh, having to be in the presence of their uh, accused abuser in during witness testimony and made all kinds of provisions for that. And so I, I always like to say that when at this last General Assembly, there was all kinds of commotion about how the PCA has done nothing about uh, to protect abuse victims. And it's just, just simply not true. Um, but Presbyterianism does take time and, and you know, it takes uh, years because you, ha- you have a, you have to get it right. And then if, if it doesn't pass that year, you have to edit it and try to get it right again. And so this last year, we had Overture 13 come to the General Assembly. So there was, uh, it failed out of overtures. There was a minority report, one of the most debated topics on the floor of the Assembly, uh, one of the closest votes for sure uh, on the Assembly floor. And I think I heard, I've heard multiple comments about the debate being some of the best as far as people actually feeling like they were swayed one way or in the other by the b- debate on the floor. The minority report failed and the recommendation to, to vote that down, the overture from the committee. And that's what passed the floor of the assembly. And what, what that overture attempted to do was to allow basically anybody to testify by removing the provision to... It removes all the qualifications and just says, as long as you promise to testify truthfully. Right. So the overture from, from last year removed... And the qualifications mainly were... There was there was something about age, but they were trying to remove that, uh, I, I, I suppose, to allow well, kids to testify um, and be given consideration. But they... they the, the, 
standard was you had to believe in God and you had to believe that there was judgment. The argument there was, well, Muslims, for instance, will believe in God and believe in judgment. So can a, you know, a Muslim can testify. Why would we let a Muslim testify and not an atheist? And, you know, I, I do think that's a, that's a valid question. So at any rate, we, we knew, um, this would, we'd get new overtures on this and Piedmont Triad Presbytery submitted one actually came out of, uh, Trinity, which is a church in our presbytery. And, uh, the, couple of teaching elders there. One of them is Derek Radney. The presenter of the overture to Piedmont Triad Presbytery was Trevor Lawrence, a ruling elder. And you're probably familiar with him from uh, various minority reports over the years and, and his work on overtures. Uh, were you surprised that this came forward so soon? Yeah, I did, um, it did seem early, but I guess they wanted to get the ball rolling. And if I recall, I think Trevor may have been, Trevor Lawrence may have been the primary author of the minority report that came out of overtures on this. So I'm okay. sure he was ready to get to work on this. One thing that was, you know, I think unfortunate is we, we only had about 10 days with this overture, the docket, the way the docket came out. And so we didn't have a session meeting. So we weren't even able to discuss it as a session and we weren't going to just call a session meeting for that. And so uh, it's substantial. I think it's, it's seven pages long. I've never seen an overture that long, but it contains all the rationale. I don't know if that's what's going to get sent up. Can you read it? Uh, yes. Good. Good. Walk us. Walk us through it. It's it's amending BCO thirty five in a couple of places, and and walk us through yeah, some so of the changes. The the first change is basically to strike all of the qualifications for the current qualifications for competent witnesses, which would be about belief in the existence of God and a future state of rewards and punishment. It strikes all the language and then adds this line, any person who promises to testify truthfully can be called as a witness. And then it also um, modifies the language a little bit, saying that anyone has the right to object to a witness and the court shall consider and rule on the object objection. Um, so that's the 35-1 modification. And then the 35-8 is to what was the oath. So it strikes the language of the oath or affirmation that should be administered by the moderator, and it replaces it with the court shall inform the witness that regardless of whether he believes in God or in a future state of rewards and punishment, his promise is made in the presence of God, and God will judge him on the fall on the truthfulness of his answers. The moderator shall then ask the witness the following, and it states the promise, and it strikes from the promise, the existing oath, the presence of God is stricken, and and at the end it says, as you shall answer to the judge of the living and the dead. So it strikes all the language from the oath that would reference God. Um, and the rationale behind that is so that we can in a good conscience, administer this to an atheist. So, did you did you err in in calling it an oath, like you just like you just did? You still call this an oath? No, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, we have a whole chapter in the confession, uh, chapter twenty two, that defines what an oath is. And so, if I said that, I was a slip of the tongue. So, see, yeah, 
<laughs> right. So, I mean, like you can't help it, right? I mean, no, in 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 court testimony, you 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 swear an oath, but that is, you know, I, I asked you that. It was kind of a not a trick, but because it says there, any person who promises to testify truthfully. And so nowhere in there now do you see the word oath even either in the BCO instructions or in the vow that's taken. So it's it's a it's a promise, you know. And I think actually one of the authors of the overture even even said don't get hung up on the language. Uh it's really what it's what it's trying to accomplish is what's important. Well, that's and, we're known for getting hung up on the language. <laughs> That's sort of what we do. Yes. Uh, So uh, I want to hear more. I want to hear more about, again, the confession and just some thoughts on it. But before we get there, I want to just make clear again what's changed. So, like you said, anything to do with age, intelligence, competency, belief in God, or future state of rewards and punishment are no longer a qualification. Uh. Now they're gonna they, they will argue that it says either party has the right to object to a witness and the court shall consider and rule upon the objection. So they're I think what they're trying to accomplish is we're we're not gonna let the BCO restrict who can be a witness. We'll we'll let the court itself determine who can be a witness. Right. And then but it's it's removing again the belief in the existence of God and then they try to kind of recover that by by informing the witness that their statement is in the presence of God and there are rewards and punishments regardless of what they believe but then they ask them to promise with no reference to that yes okay. and I think it's important your first point about the removal of the qualifications for witness and then it does give a sort of a wide berth for the court to determine But it gives no guidance for how a court would make that recommendation or determination. I think that's so. It seems that this would be only as good as the the members of the court are at determining. And I don't I don't know what they're supposed to use as guidance for what constitutes a credible witness or not. Um, Some of the rationale, and maybe we'll get there later in this includes reference to the ARP's language concerning witnesses. And the ARP's um, Book of Discipline does still retain lists of things that could possibly disqualify someone from being a witness. And this leaves the PCA without any guidance as to what constitutes a a competent witness. Okay. So let's get to the oath oath part. And so... There's no reference to an oath or a vow. It's there's a promise that the person is making. What are some of your thoughts on that? I think, and one of the things that's not argued in the rationale. I mean, it definitely doesn't use the word oath to reference this, and it even acknowledges the fact that it could be contrary to our um, to scripture to try to administer the oath to an unbeliever. So I appreciate that, but it never wrestles with the idea of should we remove the oath from the church courts altogether? So this would remove an oath not just for atheists, even for believers, they would not be administered the oath. Uh, They would only be asked to promise. So this doesn't 
this isn't a separate thing that an atheist can do. Um, so are we at liberty to fully remove the oath from the church office? Why is the oath there in the first place? And none of the, that argument was sort of entertained in this rationale. And I think that's a bigger discussion that we need to have before we can consider the benefits or the, or the, the negatives to removing the oath is, can we do that according to our confession and, and our history of church polity? Yeah. So what, what does our confession say on oaths? Okay. So in chapter 22, the first um, article just defines what an oath is. Uh, an oath, a lawful oath is part of religious worship wherein upon just occasion, the person sol swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. So right here in this definition, an oath requires calling on God as witness. And this overture recognizes that. Um, I think the more meat of the argument comes as to, are we at liberty to not have an oath in the church courts? And I think that is addressed in Article 2, um, not specifically. Of course, it doesn't specifically mention church courts, but um, I won't read all of Article 2, but the, the, the second half of Article 2 says, yet as in matters of weight and moment, a an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old. So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such manners ought to be taken. Yeah, you would say a, a court of the church is, is a moment of weight and moment, particularly when we're talking about accusations. And I would think so. I mean, it can, you know, these church courts determine, you know, the standing of members, you know, Someone could be excommunicated as a result of church court. A pastor could be deposed from his position as a result of a church court. office. Yeah. You know, these are not the, you. I don't see how you could say these are not matters of weight and moment. And you consider, you know, so vows and oaths. You know, they're they're connected. They're, there's the uh, confession does make a distinction, but they're still in the same chapter. If you think of all the times we take vows, they are relating to the same offices that are under consideration in the church courts. So when you become a member, you take an, you take vows. When you become a church officer, you take vows. I think testimony in a church court, which could determine the standing of the members and the officers, is of equal weight and moment um, as when those members become members and the officers become officers. No. That that's good. You know, I, I think what this is doing, and it's similar to the the human sexuality discuss. I mean, totally different, but similar in in what I'm about to say is it's causing us all to have a better understanding of what something is, and in this case, what is a court of the church? You know, because a lot of a lot of discussion and debate and dialogue happened on the first round of the overture uh, when it was overture 13, um, both in overtures committee. Uh, minority report and then on the floor of the assembly and the whole thing around whether or not atheists can tell the truth. And the answer is, of course, atheists can tell the truth. It's, it's, it's not about that. And then, then there was this whole, well, don't we want to know the truth? And the answer to that is yes, again, of course we want to know the truth and uh, we have a duty to uphold the truth. But th the real question goes back to what you're getting at is what are oaths? And then I'll connect it to what, 
what is the court of Jesus Christ? What is church discipline? What is what is that? That that is not a part of the city of man. It's a part of the city of God. It's the first instruction Jesus Christ gives to his church. You know, right there in, in Matthew 18. I mean, Matthew 16 is the first time the word ecclesia is used uh, when Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, well, on, on this rock, I will build my church. And then two chapters later, he says, here's an instruction for the church. And he outlines what becomes the basis for, for church discipline and taking them to the church. And I, I have a real problem with allowing somebody to stand before the church of Jesus Christ who doesn't acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ within that um, event, space. Uh, I'm at a lack for what the, the proper word would be. And so somebody would argue, well, but again, you let Muslims testify by the current book of church order. And, and my thought to that is, well, I, I see the inconsistency, but the answer is not to gut the whole process of, of, of that everybody involved is acknowledging the lordship of the king of the church and, and as we stand in his court. And so that, that's what I wrestle with. And I really, really wish we had more time even as a session to have studied this rather than, you know, 10 days or, or whatever it was. It was less than two weeks. And there was no way. And so, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to say I voted, I, I voted against this. So I think this is going to call, you know, we have plenty of time to before, before next general assembly. Uh, I thought you made a great point when, when we were discussing it at Presbyterian, he actually, even, uh, Dr. Opama Robertson, like I told you, he called me on the phone to say, who is that young ruling elder? What he said was exactly right. Uh, it, it, so, um, and, and it was talking about your speech about this and you spoke about how oaths are not just to, uh, assure, I think, I think you were saying like, assure us of truth. There, there, there's more to it than that. And what would you remember some of your argument beyond? Yeah. That? So, um, the passage is slipping on my mind. I think it was Hebrews. I can't remember where it was in Hebrews, but the oath is for those hearing the testimony and for those receiving, and it gives confidence in that. And the reason we know that must be true is all throughout Scripture, God places himself under oath. So do we feel like God, did we think God was at risk of, of speaking falsely or not following through with his promise? Of course, we know that's not the case. He put himself under oath for the benefit of Abraham or whoever else he was speaking to, to say, I will do what I said or what I say, what I am saying is true. So it's the confidence of the hearers as well as the truthfulness of the speaker. Right, right. And it's Hebrews 6, uh, 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So he, he and I think took an oath read, by his own name. It was either before or immediately after that. It, it speaks of how, how man uses an oath as the final word. So that, that speaks to, so like the final word in, in a court of law, for instance. So that speaks to confidence. So like we can never 100% know the truth in some situations. But if we if everyone is confident that this is finished and it's done, it at least puts an end to the situation in human terms. But when everyone, if people are unsure of all the proceedings, and that's one of my fears with this 
overture is that it you have a less trust in the courts by the by the church um because yeah, he, he, this goes back to if we believe according to the confession chapter 22 that an oath is a real thing that's different than a promise and that it actually has an effect and if we're removing that from this there we have to admit we are lessening the bar there, i mean if we can't admit that then we must throw out the idea of an oath altogether if it does if an oath doesn't mean anything <laughs> then, okay, we can say we haven't lost anything. But if an oath actually means something and we're getting rid of it, we've lowered the bar in the church courts. There's no way, I don't see a logical argument around that. So are we going to say it's worth it for atheist testimony? I, I wouldn't argue that. Yeah, I mean, if, if if an oath isn't taken in the in the court of the church, then where is it? <laughs> when are we taking it? Uh, within the church. So, yeah, absolutely. So you, there, you were referring to uh, Hebrews 6.16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their uh, disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heir of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And so, right. And and um, so what one concern is, what if this atheist uh, has the only information that will exonerate because they did make the point that you know this could this is not simply about uh, a victim of abuse but I mean we we certainly care about a victim of abuse but but it also could exonerate somebody who's accused of something uh, falsely and 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 it's true and uh, but as we've said and as the discussions during general assembly kind of kind of hit on this like evidence is always admissible like if a crime is committed. The civil authorities have to deal with it, not the court of, of the church. That's that's their sphere. And whatever happens, whatever evidence is turned up in, in that public record becomes evidence that's usable in in the, uh, the 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 court of the church. I mean, so that that's already available. And they, you know, and so they used all these anecdotes and there's there's a, a lot of, well, what about this and what about that? But like, when has it ever happened that the only thing that would have proven or exonerated a case or proven guilt was the, the testimony of an atheist. And by the way, you need more than one word against another word. You're going to need more than that. But, you know, I, I looked up this a little bit because I was curious about how uh, Judaism handled these these cases. And, and again, um, not trying to be a Judaizer, that's not the point. The point is how, how did they... How did they view it? You know, Gentile testimony in, in, and I mean, Gentiles did have rights in, in Israel. They, you know, I mean, they were, but uh, not the same as the covenant people. And in testimony, they distinguished between attestating and testifying. And this is, you find this in Tal, Tal, the Talmud. And so what they would do is if an, if a, if a Gentile, a non-believer had uh, testimony to give, it was almost like they did it in, a, in the form of a deposition outside the court. And so you're not bringing them into the proceeding, but you're, you're receiving that testimony. And then that testimony becomes evidence that can be used, but you're not going to obviously give them an oath and have them swear something they can't swear. And you're not going to pretend like uh, you can let them stand there and, and say, uh, Yahweh is not the real God either, you know? So, I think that might be something to pursue. I mean, maybe maybe somebody would write an overture that uh, provide or, or create some kind of provision for 
uh, a testating outside the court that can be used within the court. Well, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Um, well, I mean, first of all, just in no way would I don't think either of us ever say if an atheist came to a, a member of, of a session or a pastor and gave a report on a member, you know, that they were in sin in some way, would would we ever just disregard that report because it came from an atheist? Like we wouldn't we investigate. No. You know, of course not. So this is a. I just want to make it clear that this is a very fine point of who can author who can offer testimony in a church court at an ecclesial trial um, that could result in the in the directly in the conviction of of a uh, a member of the of the church body. Again, yeah, we operate according to the word and. All throughout Scripture, oaths are taken in multiple cases, and and then just from a church history standpoint, I mean, this would overthrow hundreds of years of church polity that's existed, and and oaths that have been administered, as far as I know, as far back as really written human history in a court of any kind, oaths are administered. Right. Right. And, and to your, you made the point earlier that it's not like if, if an atheist or a non-believer came to us and, and raised concerns or uh, made accusations that we wouldn't look into them. BCO 31.2 is all about that. It says an investigation, however originating, <laughs> you know, but there has to be some sort, some form of corroborating evidence. And, and honestly, like a lot of this happens outside when we're talking to court and a trial and an oath and witnesses, we're talking about formal process and almost no case goes immediately to formal process. Of course, abuse cases would, because you're not going to try to work that out outside of, of, of the court. But, but a lot of this stuff gets done outside of, outside of actual process. You hope you never have to get to process. One, uh, one other thing, I know a lot of focus has been put on, uh, Westminster Confession 22, but, uh, James Bruce, who's a pastor, uh, in the PCA wrote a great article on this of atheists and odes or, or something like that. Do you actually, do you remember the title of it? He wrote a couple articles. He actually wrote one, I believe, before of atheists GA, and, odes, yeah. and then he wrote one after, and he had a great oh. floor speech at GA. So, I remember a lot of what he's written and said, but I get it confused as to which article and whether it was a floor speech. Um, but he's done. Well, he, he, right. So he, he raises the fact that within the court of Jesus Christ, it, it, somebody testifying not in the name of the Lord is actually violating uh, the third commandment. And he, he uses Westminster Larger Catechism 12 and 13 for that. And so 12 says, what is required in the third commandment? It says, the third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the words, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there, uh, he makes him, thereby he makes himself known, be holy and reverently used. And then it, it, it goes on, uh, by meditation, word, writing, by holy profession, an answerable conversation. And so he, he'll use that and he'll say, well, that, that is saying that like, if you're in, when you're swearing, you are swearing by God. So are you, are you doing that in a holy way? If you're not acknowledging his uh, Lordship, his authority. And then it's, I think it's even more 
pointed in, in the next question. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required and has a litany of things as, as is usual. And it talks about oaths. And it's interesting because the scripture reference there, the proof text for Jeremiah 5, 7 is taking oaths by, uh, gods that are not gods, you know? And you say, well, an atheist is not taking an oath to any god. Well, in that case, he's promising by his own name. He's made himself a god, you know? James makes the argument that this is actually not only a violation of Westminster Confession 22, but also of the larger catechism 112 and 113. And I, I was pretty, um, compelled by that. What did you think of those arguments? Yes, I think so. And I think maybe some of the, um, what the, the Westminster divines had in view was not, you know, when they spoke of, uh, from the third commandment was not necessarily atheists or, or it was maybe, uh, Anabaptists who would, ref those who refuse, you know, they, they believe scripture bars us from taking oaths and, and they would use other language to get around taking oaths. And I think maybe, and I'm going a little bit from memory because I think I've read stuff about this, that they're saying, no, even though you don't mention God's name, you are still, it's just as binding as if you did. You And um, and it's actually a sin to not include his name in it. Uh, right. So I think it's interesting to, to apply that now to atheists because I don't think, I don't think they had atheists in view, but uh, I still think it does. Yeah, Kev. Now, did you get that from your uh, your your BTS, your Birmingham Theological Seminary class with uh, almost Doctor Derek Bright? No, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, of so many different things I've read. Um, no, I, there's actually in in the PCA history website, which if you haven't been there, is a goldmine for doc PCA documents from from you know since our founding. Um, Thank you, Wayne Sparkman. Yes. So <laughs> there's a whole uh, section of the website dedicated to the BCO and tracking changes in the BCO, language in the BCO. So in that section on um, this section, 35, to, pertaining to witnesses, there's some footnotes, and it references a, I don't remember, 19th century, I think, book. And I'm not even sure if I'm saying the name right. Junkin, uh, like DX Junkin or something that I found. It's a whole book on oaths, and I've read, I don't know, 75% of it. Really good. I highly recommend it. But uh, wow. it, I, I would hesitant to give us an ancestor's opinion on a present-day matter, but I would have a, I would think he would feel very strongly about the oath being necessary in a church court. <laughs> right. I put it that right. way. Well, I, I look forward to the conversation, uh, but, I, but I assume that there'll be a number of these that come up and maybe not maybe maybe people decide this is the one they want to vote on and we'll have dialogue on it i'd really love to see something along the lines of what i've already said where we can uh you know make it clear and have provisions for how we can get information to be used as evidence in a case from non-believers but uh but not admit them into the the proceedings of a, of a processed court church discipline case and in that i think we need to clean up the language because i just don't think it makes sense to let um non-believers who believe in god to testify in our courts either you know so I, I i see the inconsistency and i will say about our brothers in piedmont triad that that wrote this i think a lot of their changes were 
were smart. I mean, they cleaned up the language well, I think. Um, but I think you've hit the nail on the head, Kev, about it, it's not about how we get the information. It's got to start with what's an oath and what is the court of Jesus, you know, what is a court of the church of Jesus Christ? And, and that's got to determine who gets to be admitted into it. So I, I really hope that's where a lot of discussion, discussion goes. Yeah. And I just, I think if we're going to make this change as a church, we need to feel the weight of this change. And it's not just simple wording like, Oh, we can remove, and and this is what really I don't I didn't really want to make this point I didn't at Presbytery but that what struck but stricken from the oath which is no longer an oath it strikes the presence of God but keeps the truth like the line right underneath it talks about the truth like if you read the BCO like the words presence of God are stricken and directly under it 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 says that we need the whole truth and nothing but the truth and I just think. We need to feel the weight if we're going to strike the presence of God from from this proceeding. Now, the or at least the acknowledgement of the presence of God from the promise or the oath administered to the witness. Are we going to say we can reliably retain the truth? And um, yes, we acknowledge that atheists can tell truth, but I think we need to realize the weight of this. And like I said, there's a whole chapter in our confession just concerning an oath. And and this is a major change. It's not just wordplay. Right, right. Yeah. It it's okay to get hung up on the words when we're talking about our BCO. Yes, and the presence of God. <laughs> yeah, amen. That's right. That's right. Okay, well, that's that's pretty much what we had to share, kind of a nuts and bolts conversation. I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure I will stand by everything I said because, I, as I've said, I, we just didn't have enough time to research and think of this. Also, if you'll see, I'm gonna I'm gonna find that and just scroll. This is seven pages. I've never seen an overture, so here's the rationale. Actually, I, I guess we could read those points. Um, Summary of what the proposed amendment does and does not do. The amendment expands witness eligibility and permits church courts to hear the testimony of persons who are willing to affirm the revision questions, the revised questions. The amendment retains a party's right to object to the admittance of any witness. The amendment requires the court to inform every witness, regardless of individual beliefs, of his oath or affirmation is made in the presence of God and that God will judge him on the truthfulness of his answers. The amendment modifies the exemplary promise such that it is more generally applicable to Christians, non-Christian theists, and atheists. The amendment does not require the court to permit any person to testify as a witness. Only witnesses who affirm that they will testify, testify truthfully are permitted to be considered as witnesses. If either party objects to the amendment of a witness, the court shall consider and rule on the objection. The amendment does not require the court to attach the same degree of credibility to the testimony of every witness. And the amendment does not require the court to administer an oath to any witness for whom an oath to God would be uh, unlawful. So it, it is interesting, Kevin, that they, they in their rationale, are still saying this could be an oath for a a believer. So it's almost like whatever you believe it to be, you're doing, that's what you're doing. And yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm just not a fan of, of postmodern sort of 
You yeah, know, I mean, I would. Think, it is whatever you want it to be, kind of thing. The um, number four but, that you read, I would take a little issue with. It says the the amendment modifies the exemplary promise, and my point, and, and really the, the crux of my whole argument, is it doesn't modify the exemplary promise. It substitutes a promise for an oath, and yes. that's my. Like I said, there are many other arguments to be had, but to me, that's the first and foremost one that we should be having. Um, and you're right. It doesn't require, I mean, it actually disallows any oaths. If, you, if take the the language strictly taken does not even allow an oath. Um, yeah. And, and that's, a, that's an important distinction. And, and honestly, um, you know, I, I, I've actually heard the authors of this make that argument only what on, the only thing that matters is what's, what's in the BCO, not the rationale for them to make that argument on other in other areas and and that's right and so now there's no oath in there um even if their rationale is well it is an oath for the believer and it's not not an oath for the person who wants it just to be a promise and and we don't have to get hung up on the language but no i think we do and um but but i'm looking forward to the the debate and the discussion and and hopefully you know one thing i i think we've seen over the years uh, when you have multiple iterations of it, while it is frustrating, you do fine tune what needs to happen. And uh, if you've only been through one round of that, it could be, it could be frustrating. But when you see sort of the fruit of going back to the drawing board or, or editing and, and coming to overtures and, and them editing it and the dialogue on the assembly floor, and then you realize, Oh, this is actually good. You know? So I think it would be helpful to have some guidance on what you do with something like an atheist um, who, who testifies to something. Like I said, I don't think placing them, you know, essentially on the witness stand under oath is the answer, but I think it would be helpful to, to have a little bit of guidance in that. Um, I don't know if that is, is BCO language. I don't know exactly what it would look like, um, but no, I think I think we need guide. I think we I think we need guidance. I think we need guidance on what other forms of valid evidence are and how and what are good procedures to present that evidence, uh, as opposed to saying we're going to stick everybody in the court and you're making a promise and you're making an oath and let's not worry about what that is. Just tell the truth. You know, no, let's let's fine tune what evidence is and what's the process to get and and the evidence which inclu can include um attestating to something that happened um for people that actually don't even have standing in the court so all right man well good to good talking to you i don't like this might be might have been a little boring for people but uh maybe maybe not i don't know and i do have more good episodes uh on the way and actually there there may be an episode upcoming where you'll be on again soon kev about uh engineer ruling elders <laughs> as i see a 3d printer behind you yes. in the background yes that is not uh that's not my field of engineering but if i was a if i was a, a ruling elder worth his salt it would be nothing but books of systematic theologies and commentaries <laughs> and puritan fathers behind me but no i didn't uh i didn't do that just for this episode so um i left, the three, <laughs> I left the three but you do it well what's that stack of books behind you there oh that is my reference material for my uh, forthcoming 
soon to be forthcoming uh, term paper for a class I'm taking on the confession with uh, Birmingham Theological Seminary. Awesome. And your your prof there was Derek Bright, as we've already mentioned. And are you allowed to say what your next class is? Uh, yes, it's, I can't remember if it's called Church Polity or Presbyterian Polity. But yes, it will be with, uh, is he Dr. Fred Greco or is he? No. No. He's Mr. Moderator, though. Mr. Moderator, Fred Greco. He's listed on <laughs> he's listed on the BTS website as Doctor Fred Greco. Is he okay? Well, I but I've never heard I've never heard him called Doctor. But I'm not he sure could be. if that's if he, that was a typo or not. He could be. Either way, um, he's definitely competent to teach the church polity class. <laughs> yes, the Mr. Moderator Fred Greco, and so uh, this is our our plug. Uh, BTS, Birmingham Theological Seminary, is actually a sponsor of this podcast, Presbyterian Reformed Churchmen. And so, so yeah, I, I'm doing my doctor ministry program with, with BTS. And Kevin is doing his uh, leadership certificate, Presbyterian leadership certificate with them. And these are all master's level classes, right, Kev? Yes. Uh, from what um, Ike Reader has said, that these are classes that already existed in their different master's programs. And they've just sort of combined a few into the certificate program. So um, like the class that I was in this summer, I was in with, um, I think at least one, if not two, uh, you know, MDiv students. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, but you, and you got some great professors there and you can parlay that into your own masters if you want. Well, thanks again for being on and uh, thanks for listening until next time.